So we all just had an election here in America, and a lot of Democrats were saying that democracy itself was on the ballot. So was it? And if so, did democracy win? And what about Joe Biden's promises to heal the country? Are we still a deeply divided country? Is it going to heal? How intractable is the problem of polarization. Welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. Unfortunately, Julia is not able to join us today due to a conflict. And today we have a very special guest, Ezra Klein, who's one of those guests who needs no introduction, but in case you don't know who he is for some reason, uh, he's the founder and editor-at-large at Vox, the host of The Ezra Klein Show, and author of the book, Why We're Polarized. So welcome to the pod, Ezra. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. So how are you feeling about American democracy right now? It depends what hour of the day you ask me. I don't feel good about America. I don't feel good about American democracy at all right now, to, to be blunt. I'm glad Donald Trump is defeated. Uh, that's <laughs> that's a positive thing, I think. My quick loss on the election results, as I understand them to be developing, because, of course, we haven't counted all of the votes and we haven't had the two Georgia runoff uh, Senate elections, is that Democrats won the presidency and lost democracy. Um, I don't think it is likely the Democrats win the two Georgias and thus get a 50-50 split in the Senate, which then Kamala Harris could break his tiebreaker. And even if they did, I'm not sure I think they would do all that much with it, much less getting rid of the filibuster or anything like that. So you have this situation where because of the Republican Party's massive structural advantage in the Senate, they've kept the Senate uh, despite winning fewer votes in the last three or four cycles now. Um, the House looks like it slipped a little bit more Republican, probably for the same reason. You have Republicans holding on pretty well in state legislatures. I don't think Democrats flipped even one, which will give them power over the decennial redistricting process, which, of course, will affect not just how the House is structured, but the Electoral College in the future. Um, the Electoral College, of course, being the key thing in the presidential election, too. There's a great tweet going around that, you know, nation anxiously awaits to see if a candidate who won five million more votes will win the election. And then you have, of course, the 6-3 split on the Supreme Court, which has been and will continue to bring down rulings on things like the Voting Rights uh, Act, voting rights in general, redistricting that allow the sort of minoritarian path to power to entrench itself. So I don't feel good about how American democracy is evolving. And I think that we have a political party in the Republican Party that has become dangerously unmoored from the judgment of the public. Uh, and the judgment of the public is a disciplining, useful thing, which, among other things, I think would have convinced Republicans to reform if they had been exposed to the full consequences of the Trump presidency in its popular opinion form in terms of uh, what it said to the country and how the country reacted to it. So glad Trump is gone. Um, the structural issues are, are, are still quite are still quite deep. And as far as I can tell, worsening. Ezra, I, I read a piece that you recently wrote on Vox about us watching a coup in plain sight. And there's a, there a comment in that piece at the beginning, and we'll put this in the show notes for our listeners, which I thought was an exceptional, exceptional insight into the nature of our dysfunction. And you mentioned this, it's kind of like a new wrinkle on American exceptionalism, where you say that this notion of American exceptionalism makes it harder for us to see the you know, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but the true nature of our own dysfunction. And I'm curious about kind of where we go from here in our institutions, but we can get to that in a second. But before we do, I mean, looking back at the election and 
Biden right now has a very commanding lead in the popular vote, and he's leading. Uh, obviously, he's the president-elect in the Electoral College. But you know, at least at the presidency, but also in the House and in the Senate, this election turned out to be a lot closer than I think most people expected. And can you share some insights in that? I mean, did we expect it to be this close, or you know, what happened here? What about this election blinded us to the outcome? So I think a couple of things here. I think it's such a good question. We can talk about the coup piece in a minute because I found Trump's behavior in the aftermath of it not unexpected, but the recognition that we have somebody currently in the presidency who would completely burn this country's political system to the ground to refuse the rejection of the electorate is genuinely terrifying to me. And the degree of indulgence the Republican Party offers him uh, while he is convincing tens of millions of people of this uh, theory of the election is really scary. And I don't think we should miss it. I don't think we should just push it to the side and say, oh, it's just him being absurd. It's Twitter. Don't worry about it. They tag the tweet as disputed. So we can put a pin in that, but, but I don't want to totally forget it. When you talk about the surprise many Democrats felt, uh, particularly in the early hours of the election, I think there are a couple things here. One is that, and I had a, an episode on my show with Chris Hayes the other day where we were talking about this, there is a tendency to read polling, understand it to be an accurate picture of reality, and then be angry at reality or try to under, or try to explain the delta between polling and reality in terms of reality making a series of bad decisions, right? So the Jamie Harrison-Lindsey Graham race was not close. Polling showed it to be close. It was not close. And there's no reason to believe it was ever close. It, there's no reason to believe they were actually even. And then in the past four days or whatever it was before the vote, uh, Lindsey Graham ran away with it. Similarly with Susan Collins and Sarah Gideon in Maine. So one issue here is that people are surprised by how close it was because they were seeing polling that said reality looked differently than that. I mean, if you look at the final polls in Wisconsin, you were seeing things like Joe Biden up by somewhere between eight and 14 points. I mean, Wisconsin in the polling was not close and there was a lot of polling of it, right? I mean, people recognized that it may have been underpolled towards the end in 2016 and the pollsters were trying to not make the same mistake they did in 2016. So people felt that what they were seeing in Wisconsin was going to be a, a, a reasonable uh, projection of the reality that we were going to find on election night and then it wasn't. So I think there's a real question of whether or not you read the electoral results as something diverged from what our expectations should have been versus our expectations were simply wrong because the polling had always been wrong or was wrong for, for quite a while before the election. And those end up being really different answers. If there's some reason to believe voters broke towards Trump in the final days, that's one set of analyses we can do and think about what its lessons and, and implications are. Whereas if you just believe we are a much more closely divided nation, and one of the dimensions of that divide is that the kinds of things that get somebody to ask to answer a poll are simply increasingly correlated with being a Democrat or voting for Democrats, that's a that's a different issue. But you should understand the divide as being that much more immovable because you're not dealing with late deciders who could have gone the other way. So let's pull the pin out of the coup in real time argument and and see what's inside of that balloon. Uh, and, you know, I mean, balloons don't have pens, Lee. Yeah, uh, yeah. You're really showing yourself to be a coastal liberal here, man. Yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Well, anyway, the point point that I wanted to, to, to get at is this this question about 
the continuation of democracy itself. Now, when I you know think about democracy, I think a lot about the importance of the losers and that the losers have a really important role to play in the demo- in de- in the continuation of democracy that they have to accept that when they lose it is legitimate the process is fair because if not then you know the basis of legitimacy and fairness collapses and you can't have a democracy if you can't agree on shared fair electoral rules so we have that on on one hand and then what you mentioned at the beginning on the other hand, Ezra, which is that Democrats keep winning the popular vote. They've won the popular vote for the Senate, for the House, for the presidency for most of the last several decades. Uh, and yet we're, we're in this moment in which we have political institutions that are preserving minoritarian rules. So, it, I mean, it seems like there's a sense of illegitimacy on both sides. So you think we might agree that we should do something different, but but I don't think we're going to agree on that. So, I mean, h- how do you think about these two different types of, of illegitimacy? And you know, is there any way to, to think about resolving them? Or are we just getting more and more stuck in, in some terrible metaphor that I'm going to avoid making? So to, um, to, to pull the pin out of this water balloon for a second and, and go deep <laughs> into this, this is a really complicated interface between these two issues. And the hardest part for me on my book tour has been to explain the way polarization and de-democratization work together or reinforce each other, or or democratization could be used to create a, a healthier system amidst polarization. I think that the place to begin here is to say polarization is not a bad word. You can have a healthy political system amidst very high levels of polarization, and we see that all over the world. Polarization is not the same as conflict, but it's also not the same as anti-system behavior. It's not the same as being unwilling to admit loss. Uh, We have had elections that featured profoundly different types of candidates running against each other, and they admitted loss just fine. I mean, 2016 was a very, very divided election, but Hillary Clinton conceded the election. She did so quickly. The behavior of Donald Trump and then the indulgence much of the Republican Party has shown towards it. And by the way, let me say this very clearly. Donald Trump has repeatedly said since the night of the election that he has won the election. Not that there are ballots left to count. Not that, you know, he wants to wait for every state to make its own call. Not that there are a couple irregularities here or there. That he has won the election. That he won it on election night. And that since then, Democrats have been inventing, finding, concocting, or stealing votes to erase his lead and make him lose. And he is saying that over and over again. He is saying it on Twitter. He is saying it on radio shows. His people are saying it on television. Um, He is going on the Mark Levin show. Mark Levin is saying that the states should appoint electors who will do their duty and put Donald Trump back in the White House because the election was stolen. Like, it is happening This is the thing happening. And so the Republican Party is not really going along with him. So he does not have the power to to actually execute what he's trying to do here, which is to say that this election he lost was actually an election he won, and they're going to take it by power. But he is convincing a lot of people that that would be the right thing to do here. And the way the Republican Party overwhelmingly has responded is not to say, this is ridiculous. Stop it. Stop it. We are sad we have lost this election, but stop it. They have said... There are many concerning irregularities in this election, which there are not, um, not compared to elections we we hold in this country. 
and we are going to fight with you and you know every legal vote must be counted and the way i would describe what they're doing the media doesn't get to decide elections the way i would characterize the way elected republicans have reacted here is to send carefully worded tweets projecting emotional solidarity with donald trump while saying something completely banal about the election like the media doesn't decide elections you know you have to count every vote and that is true like speaking as a member of the media we do not decide elections and that if there's fraud it should be dealt with in the courts and like that is true if there's fraud it should be dealt with in the courts and that every legal vote should be counted mike pence had like an all-time perfect tweet i stand with at real donald trump every legal vote must be counted and you know what if that's what donald trump was saying that's what i stand with him to it is scary to see this and so the reason that I say this connects to the other piece of your, your your question, Lee, is that it would not be possible. It would not be possible in the absence of the increasing divergence between how we would normally think of a democracy in this country and what we actually have in our electoral institutions. If we were simply looking at the popular will, uh, Donald Trump, this would not be in any way close. It's not that close in the electoral college either. But Donald Trump would be down by, you know, whatever it is, four to seven million, I think, by the time this is likely to be over. And he wouldn't have won in 2016. And that's important because if Donald Trump hadn't won in 2016, if having uh, lost a popular vote by roughly three million, he had simply not won the election, as would normally happen in an advanced democracy. If that had happened in the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party, rather than taking root in the Republican Party and turning so many people over to it and making them cower before it in this disgusting, cowardly way, it would have been discredited. It would have been pushed out further. People would have been angry that the Trumpists had blown a winnable election in, in, against Hillary Clinton. Of all people, how could they let her get in? And now Republicans were going to lose the Supreme Court seat, et cetera, et cetera. So the more you have a party that can get away with these kinds of antics without facing the full measure of electoral re retribution for them, the more you actually can't stop the antics, the more they, 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 they entrench. I think what a lot of Republicans think right now is they're going to indulge this conspiracy for the moment. Say, you know, the fraud needs to get worked out by the courts. You know, every legal vote must be counted. We shouldn't call it too quickly. By the way, none of them were saying we shouldn't call it before every vote is counted in 2016. I want to note. But then when all that is said and done, they're going to say, look, in the end, Joe Biden won. We're moving on here. You know, don't worry about it. The Republican Party has not shown the capacity to indulge this stuff for just long enough and then shut it down. It becomes part of their base, just as birtherism did before it, just as a hundred other things have before it. And then they ultimately have to kowtow to it. And so I think this looks bad. I think that Joe Biden is going to win the election and he's going to take office. I don't think that I don't think what Donald Trump is attempting here is going to work, but it will work with some people. And we are seeing the degree to which the Republican Party cannot stand up against it. And again, the only reason they will retain power acting the way they do is because they are not exposed because of their advantage in the Senate and, and in the EC to the level of loss that this kind of behavior would normally get you. So when people ask me what the solution to polarization is, I tell them endlessly, there's not a solution to polarization, but to make the system work better amidst polarization, you need more democratization because at least one disciplining force is a need to have an agenda that people actually like and then behave in a way people actually respect. And, you know, I wish it were the case that people watching Donald Trump, he couldn't get more than 10 or 20% of the vote. I think that is like the correct way this should play out, but that's not the case. But he can't get 50% of the vote. Um, you know, or even really all, 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 all that close in these elections. So I would like to see the exposure to the disciplining mechanisms of democracy. But in its absence, you have a party that cannot win the popular vote, that is turning against democracy and feels more and more embattled in its face. And that's not a healthy space to be in.
Well, let me, I just want to push a little bit on that point, because I, I, I'm not so sure that Trump and Trumpism would have gone away had the election gone a little differently in 2016. I mean, I think if Trump had lost, he would have done the same thing he's doing right now, which is he would have claimed the results were illegitimate. I mean, he basically telegraphed that several times in the in the lead up to the election and that we would you know, have a Republican Party that was viewing Hillary Clinton as a as an illegitimate president, undermining her at every step of the way. And, you know, I mean, I think when we think about the, the legitimacy of a democratic system, I mean, it does depend on the losers, but the losers also have to feel like they can win at some point, that the system is fair enough. And, you know, I think the other danger is that if to the flip side of your point, that if the Democrats just could win enough uh, votes and enough seats because we had a, an actual genuine majoritarian democracy, that you would see even more resentment on behalf of a lot of Republicans who feel like, well, there's no legitimate path to power in our country. And those radical Democrats are going to push socialism and secularism down our throats. And now we don't even have political institutions. So the alternative now becomes violence. And so, I mean, I think that's a debate is whether the Republican Party would moderate if they couldn't win under our institutions or whether they would do something else. Now, the problem, of course, is that given given that this sort of middle ground is it seems like what they're doing is trying to make the institutions even more anti-democratic to preserve their power, which it seems to me equally bad. So, I, I mean, I just feel like none of those options are, you know particularly great, but you know, I think maybe there's a little disagreement here. So so let me push back on, on both these points. So it is clearly true because this is how he has reacted from everything from Miss Universe or uh, what was it? Emmys, right? Or Oscars or something. Uh, you know, he said it was rigged when he didn't win an Emmy for some season or another of Celebrity Apprentice to Ted Cruz winning the Iowa caucus, he said, you know, was was the result of cheating. There's no doubt that Donald Trump, if he lost in 2016, would say it was rigged. But Donald Trump didn't own the Republican Party institutionally yet, right? That was a different context. And so the Republican Party at that point, I think many of its officials, the Paul Ryans and Marco Rubios and so on of the world, were ready and I think in some guttural way kind of hoping to be able to like push this guy back out and blame him for a loss. And if that had happened, yes, like Donald Trump might have started Trump TV and would be a toxic force on our politics, but people don't like losers. If there's anything Donald Trump knows about politics, anything to take away from the way he operates, it is that he has a deep understanding that people don't like losers. Look at how Democrats treated Hillary Clinton after she didn't win the presidency in 2016. I mean, she is like every time she talks, there's a chorus of how dare you like have views on politics after after winning the popular vote in 2016. Um, so one, I'm not telling you that everything would be irenic and Edenic if um, things had gone differently in 2016, but I think it would be better. Uh, and then two, to, to your second point, I do believe parties are more rational than I think you're giving them credit for here. And I think the Republican Party is a capable party at the national level that would do things differently if it needed to win. Um, I think you've seen that in the Democratic Party. Look, Democrats are exposed to these currents too. Uh, something that is a big part of my book is that both parties are exposed to the currents of polarization, but it is the incentives of the political system and the way they have to interact with it that change their responses. So look, after 2016, there were lots of directions Democrats emotionally wanted to go. Right. They emotionally wanted to go towards a, a, a left populism. They emotionally wanted to go towards 
a candidate who in their very being and who they were and what race they were and what gender they were and what their background was would represent a rejection of everything Donald Trump believes about the country and the sort of ethno-nationalism he tries to put at our core. They want, like, I can tell you, I reported with Democrats through this whole period, like that, that's where they emotionally were. Very few Democrats were emotionally on the Joe Biden train. That was not a common view. But what they were willing to do, and I think it actually ended up being a strategically correct maneuver, they were willing to say, the voters we need to win over are not me. We need to win over these functionally white working class voters in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, and we think this guy can do it. And so they made a choice that was in many ways a difficult choice for a lot of them. And then they united behind a candidate who is not their favorite candidate in order to win the election. Because when you lose, it's fucking painful. And when you lose it and the stakes are high, it's even worse. And so you reform a little bit. Not easily, and not everybody wanted to, and you guys are on Twitter same as I am, so you know it's not a smooth process. But the idea of the Republican Party, having lost in 08, in 12, and in 16, wouldn't have taken something from that loss. And if they then like got beat in 2020 again, wouldn't take something from it and reform? I just don't buy it. They're good smart strategists in this party. James Walner's one of them. Like people would make some different decisions, but they're not going to have to make different decisions if they can win not making different decisions. And so, yeah, like, look, it might be that the Republican Party has become such an irredeemable institution that no differences in the political system would make any difference. And if so, then like, Lee, you're and my projects are both screwed. Sorry, like your book isn't going <laughs> to do it either. But I don't believe that. Like, I actually believe more in the Republicans here, I think, than you do. And I think that the reason this kind of thing entrenches itself is that they can get away with it. Mitch McConnell wants Senate majorities. If he couldn't get him this way, he'd try to get him another way. Um, and I think if you look at how Republicans play in blue states, like including very blue ones like Massachusetts and Maryland, you can see that there is like a path for the Republican Party there. And Democrats certainly leave them plenty of openings with which to take it. So yeah, I'm, I am just not of the view that if in a majority votes world, Republicans would be locked out of power forever. I just don't think it's true. I just want to say one more thing, and then I want to hear what James has to say, which is to say that I think it's important not to essentialize the Republican Party as this single decision-making entity, but rather recognize that, I mean, as you say, there are certainly good and decent folks in the Republican Party who don't want to move the party in the, in the Trumpist direction, but that parties are coalitions, and given the, the coalition of groups in the Republican Party, I think it's very hard for the moderates to gain an upper hand at this point. Whereas in the Democratic Party, the party has long been a, just a much broader coalition of progressives and moderates. So there's just a lot more moderates to gain the upper hand. So I want to turn it over to James now. Well, I appreciate the, the kind words. I'm not sure how smart I am. And um, but, you know, I. I agree and disagree with a lot of what was just said. And I think in trying to kind of dive into this, the election and what it tells us about polarization as we pivot to talking about where we go from here, because I, I'm very, I have a very, I'm an optimist, but I have a very gloomy outlook as to the futures. I don't know if those two things are compatible, but you know, the balloon metaphor might in fact be very apt because if you pull a pen out of a balloon, your house doesn't blow up, right? You just get, you know, some water on the carpet, I guess, if it's a water balloon or hot air, I don't know what the metaphor, where it goes from there. But I think this election is really interesting because it showed us, it seems to me, that 
how, at least the results thus far, as I look at them, that it, it shows us the real nature of our polarization or why we're polarized and how we're polarized. Because, you know, as I see it, 75 million people voted for one candidate and 71 million people voted for another candidate. Now, Lee would say, well, there's just, just two parties. But the fact of the matter is Republicans picked up seats in the House. They they have a narrow majority as of now. Who knows what will happen in Georgia in the Senate. And in 71 versus 75 million, I mean, four odd million or so. I mean, this is not you know, setting aside talk about the Electoral College, the popular vote, the legitimacy of uh, national electorate versus the constitutional state type electorates we have. That's not a huge difference in the grand scheme of things. I think we're narrowly divided, but we don't really and no one's really in the driver's seat right now. And I don't think people were really in the driver's seat after 2016 either. But we don't see that. I mean, I think you're right. Ezra. I mean, when you lose, it sucks. No one likes to lose. And we think that it's really bad. But it seems to me, looking back in American history, losing most times is never as bad as we expect it to be. And winning is never as good. And the reason why I think we miss that today, and I kind of keep hammering on this, is that we have this new way of looking at politics, this kinds of means ends view. We see everything as a factory, this big factory of the government, of Congress. And we just want to control it so we can make our widgets. And when you do that, you have this production-oriented view. You want to control the means of production, which means you got to focus on elections because that's where you ultimately win the things you need to control the factory. And we lose sight of what happens in between elections. And I think liberals can be can attest to this as, as frustrated as they have been over the past decade or so. I think conservatives can, can uh, attest to this as well because... The second, the joke is, the second you win an election, there's another election on the horizon. And we see this time and time again. And that election on the horizon is is used by the parties, by whomever, as, a, as an excuse to not act, to not try to win inside Congress or in the presidency or out on the, you know, with the bully pulpit. And what we ultimately see is this kind of you know, we're just trying to play to the moderate middle, maybe. We're trying to not be objectionable. No one says anything anymore. But we also, I think it leads us to overstate, to overstate the nature of the threat. And so I want to disagree just a little bit with the coup piece. And I really, I enjoyed it. And I think, and a point I really want to hammer home is that when you write that, you know, this, in, in essence, an ineffective coup is still a problem. I agree 100%. And I think that we have too often dismiss things because they are just loony out in the fringes and we're like, well, that's not really going to make a difference. But that's not, we shouldn't do that. And so I think that's a good point. And, but I think we need to make a distinction between Trump's rhetoric and Trump's actions. And I'm not saying that the rhetoric doesn't matter. In this case, the rhetoric may matter. Um, But I mean, it may matter more than the actions, I should say. Because when you, you know, Trump has every right. I'm, I'm not a big fan of seeking recourse for political uh, issues in the courts, as you all know. But it seems to me that there is a process laid out. We'll know in a couple of days whether or not this, uh, that whether or not Trump has evidence. I doubt that he does. But, you know, we'll see that through the court process. I don't think it's going to change any outcome. And I and I wish that the president would speak about the election and how it was conducted in a, in a different way to not undermine that democracy. But at the end of the day, is there not, should we not make a, a, should not the president's critics, let me put it this way, should not the president's critics also try to distinguish between his actions 
and his rhetoric. And I, and, I, and I hear you doing a little bit of that already, but I just wanted to see what you, what, what you thought about that, Ezra. I think there's a willful, I mean, you know I love you, James, but I think there's just like a willful naivete here. Yes, Donald Trump continuously does not do anything with his office and does not know how to follow through on his own rhetoric because he understands it fundamentally as a public marketing game. And when he yells at his underlings to like take this to the courts, they don't have a case they can make. You can't go to the courts and have your legal brief be like the election was stolen in all caps and have the Supreme Court rule on that. Um, nothing happens. And so I understand what Donald Trump is doing here to go back to balloons, which have been an unexpected through line of this conversation, as a trial balloon functionally for a coup. Like, could he get enough support to be able to do something here, whatever that might be? And the answer is no. Um, like, I'm very clear on that in the piece. But listen, I'm, I'm sitting here. Lindsey Graham says that if Trump concedes election, Republicans will never elect another president. He said to Fox News on Sunday. Well, that's just the most ridiculous thing I've heard in a while. It, but this is how it infuses the entire party, right? Lindsey Graham's not going away. He's going to be chairman of judiciary. So if Republicans don't challenge and change the U.S. election system, there will never be another Republican president elected again. President Trump should not concede. We're down to less 10,000 votes in Georgia. He's going to win North Carolina. And then he goes on to make basically some unsubstantiated allegations of, of, of voter fraud. Um, Mitch McConnell just gave a uh, speech in the, uh, was it in the Senate? Let me check this. But Mitch McConnell's rhetoric has been infused with the same kind of thing recently. And so I think that the issue here for me is that to have an entire party, and you guys, I think, have had Ziblatt on here on on some of these topics. Um, you guys, have, I know you guys had Hacker and Pearson on here on, on, on some related issues uh, and the four threats folks. Um, for an entire Republican party to buy into this kind of rhetoric, even if in the background, using the machinery of government, they're not doing that much about it. They're convincing a lot of people of it. Um, and so I take the point always in terms of talking through the effect of these things in governance, that one should not take Donald Trump's words at face value. And so I've been, and, and Vox does all the time, a lot of work on this question between what is Donald Trump saying and what is he doing, right? A lot of these executive orders and so on, they don't just don't do what he says they do. And, and when the issue is the effect it will have on people's lives, like that is a correct thing to be looking at. But when you're dealing with something like a presidential election and concession and how does a party react to defeat and how does it approach issues of democracy more generally, I think it's words, it's narrative are really important because it's also those words, that narrative, that political culture in which the next set of leaders are going to emerge or are going to run or are going to become radicalized. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't say clearly enough, I don't think the guy is going to be in office past January. Like, I think he will leave or he will be carried out of there. And I don't think the Republican Party is going to man the barricades with him in terms of its elected officials. But a Republican Party that refuses to concede that Donald Trump lost the election is a dangerous and destabilizing force in, in American life. And, and you kindly pointed out at the beginning uh, of, of our conversation, James, that line I had about American exceptionalism functionally dying on the embers of this election um, and, and this era, this idea that there's something in our political culture that keeps this kind of thing from happening here. Like, it's just clear that's not true. Now, Donald Trump might just be too much of a distractible, erratic player to follow through on some of his threats and impulses. But watching how accepting the Republican Party has been of them and of those tendencies in his politics has honestly scared the hell out of me. Like, I just feel completely differently 
about what is possible in American politics, what one of the major political parties would accept than I did eight years ago. And I, I, let me, do you feel, do you not feel that? Like, do you, are you more or less confident today than you would have been if we were talking in 2012, that if a genuinely capable demagogue, a capable would-be populist authoritarian emerged in American politics, that our parties, and in particular our Republican party, is strong enough to say no? Yeah, I don't, I'm pessimistic, but for different reasons. I don't think that the parties are ever going to say yes or no. I mean, and they're not our line of defense. Let's put it that way. If anything, they create the infrastructure. I think that, you know, Lee might speak to this, that would allow for, you know, a demagogue to get the kind of mass support that demagogues ultimately need. But I guess we've been here and, you know, the, America, the, the past is different than the present and things change. I get that. But, you know, when I look back in history and I look at like 1824, where Andrew Jackson, who obviously a lot of, you know, is not a, a shining figure in American history right now, but yeah, he denounces uh, after the House picks, uh, picks uh, Adams, denounces this corrupt bargain, corruption. This is the language of the crown corrupting the ministers in, because he made Henry Clay the secretary of state. He says the Judas of the West has closed the contract, right? And he says he's gotten his 30 pieces of silver. I mean, that's pretty intense language. And his end will be the same. And then he resigns his seat his Senate seat in Tennessee, and he proceeds to spend the next four years declaring this uh, Adams administration as illegitimate and corrupt. If you look at 18, you know, after the election of 1876, you have Democrats trying to rush through an organizing resolution in the Senate so that they can name the committees before the Republican reinforcements can arrive. And they, I mean, the Democrats and, and the Republicans are filibustering it. And it's all one big giant power grab. So I guess my point is, I don't disagree with you that these things aren't necessarily, that these things aren't bad. I think that they are bad in terms of their rhetoric. What I think is that the our system ha, can weather these things. But the reason why our system can't weather these things now is because we think about it differently and we think about our politics differently. And the, I don't think no one wants to win. No, I don't think that Democrats are going to, you know, it, right now I'll tell you, and I've said this before, it to me right now, I don't see any difference whether Democrats or Republicans control the Senate next year. It's going to be the same. It's going to be the same. I think that's now, crazy. The rhetoric may change. I think that's crazy at nihilism. The, the, um, the, you, you, don't think, you don't think Democrats would pass HR1 if they held the Senate? No, I don't. I don't. Because I think they, they would. Go to I think the they will, I think they will come up with excuses. It'll be easier. You know, no, no, no. You, so you think they would not do like they would not do a budget reconciliation bill to do a stimulus and a public option in Obamacare? I mean, it was hard enough for them to do it the first time. I don't know if they're going to have the votes. And the reason why is if you look at all of these issues on which we are divided right now, they're exactly the same issues, especially in the Senate, where senators are missing in action. Democrats and Republicans. I was pleasantly surprised to see uh, Schumer actually using some of his parliamentary procedures instead of spending, going around talking about how McConnell is the is the, you know, he's like the grim reaper. You know, and then all of a sudden it turns out Schumer has the ability to, to force votes on all of these things as well. And but the reason why Schumer can do that on Barrett is because his Democratic Party was generally united on her. He's not going to do that on spending. He's not going to do that on education. He's not going to do that on health care. The same reason why McConnell didn't do anything over the past four years. And so I think the rhetoric will continue to get worse. And I think on that, you're you're right. And I think we're polarized there. 
But in terms of what we do with the factory, once we finally control it, the irony of this whole thing is the second we see politics as production, we become incredibly unproductive because we no longer really want to try to win in these places in between uh, these elections. And I think that's the real threat. That's the thing that we didn't have in the 19th century that we do have today. So I will say just with my congressional reporting hat on, I just flatly disagree with you on this thing of the the Senate being the same no matter who controls it. I think you could see this in the House, right? I mean, in the House, one party or the other often takes control and they really do pass different bills when they do. I mean, if you look at the set of bills Democrats have passed over the past couple of years are different than what Paul Ryan's house or John Boehner's house passed before or that Kevin McCarthy's house would pass. And I think as much as senators hate to hear this, the Senate is becoming more House-like. Look, the Republican Party has not been a policy-oriented governing coalition um, in this era. So I think it has some very distinctive issues. But I don't think the same can at all be said for the Democratic Party. And so if you had a Joe Biden and a Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and a Speaker Nancy Pelosi, I just I I would bet any amount of money um, that that would have a really different set of policy outcomes than a Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Um, to go to to some of the points you made about history, which I think are apt. One thing I would just say, and this is a lesson to me of the of four threats, right? And I think you had Lieberman and Mettler on the show to talk about that to talk about that book. Is it? American democracy, and this is a pretty banal point, was not well consolidated for a very long time. So if you're going back into the 19th century, there are all kinds of moments where I think the right way to understand them is we had a 30% chance of collapse or something, right? I don't know the right probability, but you know there are a set of periods where it all could have just fallen apart. And it did in a little bit in part due to luck, a little bit in part due to people acting in, in, a, in a brave way at a moment when they were needed to act in a brave way, but it could have gone the other way, right? And so that then gets wiped out into this story of the arc of America, you know, bending towards stability, bending towards perfection, um, bending towards this continued sense of progress and, 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 and manifest destiny. You know, then I think in the, in the 20th century, democracy, particularly post-civil rights, feels pretty consolidated to people, that it's there, that America has shown this ability again and again to come through really hard times and be okay, right? Like, in fact, get better, right? Go through world wars, you know, deal with Nixon, which was a genuine threat to the system, but, you know, is ultimately shut down, at least in part, by his own party. And I think the thing now, American exceptionalism as... I understand it as I absorbed it as a child, let me put it this way, is a young thing, right? It's not that that the, the form of American exceptionalism I absorb as somebody coming of age in a post-Cold War world. It's not the same one as you got in the mid-20th century where there was a genuine challenge from, from abroad, although there will be again with China, um, and very much not the same one you would have gotten in the 19th century. This sense that America is a place where it can't happen here, and America is a place it will win, right? And America is a place, right? And you still hear this. I mean, listen to Joe Biden talk. Nothing we can't do if we put our minds to it. There's never been anything we can't do, right? Or Obama's famous speech, right? You know, you've never been a good bet to bet against America. And I think what I'm saying with this right now is that you're seeing how thin that really is. Um, could easily go the other way, could have gone the other way, and could go the other way in the future. So. I think that it's true to bring up the the 19th century to just show like, yeah, th this could this could fall apart. But I think a lot of people believed we were past that in some way uh, as a system. And I think that the the important thing to understand coming out of this on some level is that we're just not. So two things. One, Ezra, I agree with you 100 percent that Democrats would push a very bold agenda if they had 52 seats in the Senate. I mean, my conversations around the Democratic Party have, have you know, been pretty clear, it made it pretty clear to me that that's what's 
what would happen. And I mean, I think, again, there's a really important asymmetry here. And when we think about polarization, we really do have to think about the asymmetry, which is that Democrats have a, an ambitious legislative agenda of broadly popular policies, which, you know, uh, I think are a lot easier to move forward, whereas the Republican Party, you know, m the policies that they push are largely unpopular. They don't have a particularly active legislative agenda. Mostly they just want to stop stuff. So the divisions within the, I mean, there are certainly divisions within both of the parties, but divisions within the Democratic Party are not over whether they, whether they should pass legislation. It's just how bold they should be. Um, but I, I want to hang on this sort of fear point. And, and I mean, there's been a lot of pessimism hanging over this conversation. So I, I want to ask you to be a little bit more specific about like how exactly you would see democracy unraveling in the U.S. if it were to unravel over the next, you know, two, four, six years. Like what, what is the thing that you that you fear and what's the probability that you assign to it in your in your head? Well, that's a good question. So I don't think what I'm saying is that we are going to collapse into some post-political organization chaos. In some ways, when I say it would unravel, I think a lot of that unraveling has already happened and I'm just saying current trends will continue. So we came not far on uh, over the past week from having fully half of presidential elections since 2000 won by the loser of the popular vote. Half, right? And that almost happened, a couple hundred thousand votes away. Half. Never, we'd never had two in, in the space of time we had, uh, you know, after 2016. And we certainly have never had three so quickly. So that's one place. And I think there's every reason to believe that if Republicans are halfway competent in redistricting, and I have no reason to believe they won't be, that divergence between the likely popular votes and the Electoral College becomes bigger. Um, I think it might look like having a Senate, which is routinely, routinely won by the party that does not win the does not win the most votes for Senate or represent the most people in the country, and then uses that power plus the presidency to stock the Supreme Court. I don't I think sometimes when people hear this stuff, they assume that you're talking about the collapse of America. But I'm not. I'm saying the political system is just going to get worse. It's not going to be usable. It's going to incentivize more bad behavior. It's going to leave unbelievably significant problems unfixed. And I don't think that you have to imagine, you know, I don't think you have to really strain yourself to imagine what that what that will look like. It looks like some version of what we've been going through. You know, from the vantage point of 1999, just what American politics has looked like in this period is extraordinary in all kinds of directions, some of them positively, right? I mean, we've become much more, we've become a more um, straightforwardly like multi-ethnic democracy. There are a lot of, a lot of things people have trouble imagining at that point have happened. But also, you know, the Trump era has been very, very grim and disappointing and strange, and I just think that we are diverging from a system that works the way it is supposed to work. So when I think about the problem here, I I really, I think people will absorb all kinds of rules. I think there's a deep yearning in America, in the American public for stability. I don't think we are that close to huge levels of revolutionary violence in the streets. I'm not predicting anything like that. I actually think people would muddle through even with an extraordinarily unrepresentative political system. And like the legitimacy crises would be really bad, uh, but they would just kind of sit, right? And the enmity would get worse and there would be somewhat more political violence. But it's not like I think that the capital would get occupied and the, and the ruling regime overthrown. But amidst all this, 
we would have real problems that we somehow need to solve and will not be solving. Like very fundamentally, I mean, again, somewhere where I'm probably quite different than James is, yeah, I do want to see, a, I mean, I would like it to be both parties, but but parties capture the means of legislative production and legislate well to solve problems. You know, I'm very high, I'm very hair on fire right now about climate change, which obviously is an international problem in its scope, but we're definitely not going to be able to solve the international dimension of it if we can't even make any significant action on the domestic dimension of it. And so a world in which you have a majority of the country that wants to do something there and the party that keeps winning a majority of votes wants to do something there, but you can never do anything there because the way the system is built. That's not a small failure in my view. That's a failure that's going to cost millions of lives in the long run um, and, and, and keep international action from, from being effective at whatever small probability it has of being effective. So that scares the hell out of me. Uh, our healthcare system is bad and making us more and more economically uncompetitive every day and leading people to suffer and die unnecessarily. So we got real problems. Like I, I am in politics as much as I care about democracy as a deeper form of practice. I am in politics because I care about solving these deeper problems. And so to the extent the American political system becomes less able to do it, I, I think that's a real tragedy. You know, so much of my book is about how in another era, um, and in, in there I think James describes well, there was an ability to use the system's tendency towards negotiation and fighting and, and, and conflict to hammer stuff out, right? To, to, to get somewhere on, on, on things. And, you know, I, I wrote a whole book about why it is that that doesn't happen anymore. But the point isn't that we have to be polarized or unpolarized for that to be successful. But I do judge the success of our political system to some degree on whether or not we are passing the kind of legislation that moves the country forward. When I think of America in the 20th century, and I think of that at times, at times, and I want to be very careful with that comment there, as a high point for, for the American political system, I think of it that way because political parties and candidates capture the machinery of government and produce things like the Civil Rights Act, like Medicare, like Social Security, like the New Deal. And now there's some, you know, you get a little bit of that, right? You know, take the CARES Act or something as a possible example. But in terms of some really big problems, I'm, I'm concerned. So the de-democratization to me, it, I'm not predicting collapse or state failure. What I'm predicting is a system that becomes more and more illegitimate, more frustrating to people, to some degree actually on all sides of it, but also just unable to make any kind of consistent progress on things. And so eventually we are much more overwhelmed by our problems and challenges than we would need to be otherwise. Yeah, I, I think I agree with your concern, but I have different reasons. And I think those reasons, and I think the disconnect, I think highlights the true nature of our dysfunction in a way that it all comes back together, or at least I hope so. Maybe I'm just losing my mind. But, you know, if we think about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, there's, you know, one of my favorite, I love Bob Dylan. One of my favorite songs is The Times They Are Changing, 1963. And there's a verse in that song where he says, you know, come senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway. Don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. And then this is key. The battle outside raging will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times, they are a changing. What's happening right now is that we the Civil Rights Act of 64 passed because people wanted it to pass and other people didn't want it to pass. And there was a bunch of people that didn't really care. And they had a big debate about it and they kept pushing it and they weren't going to go away. And eventually 
the people that didn't care were mobilized to join those who want to pass in the most simplest way to put it. And um, as recently as the 1960s, where cities are on fire, the CIA is like assassinating people, presidents are being impeached, vice presidents are leaving office under clouds of, of, of corruption, you know, assassinations, uh, you know, Jim, Jim Crow South is, ha you know, still firmly in force. All of this stuff's happening. People, the, the military is shooting American citizens and students on campuses. The Vietnam War is raging. You have all kinds of stuff happening. And at this moment of extraordinary, extraordinary conflict and violence, in terms of no one is being, no one's happy, conservatives, liberals, everybody in between, no one's happy. And what happens? It's one of the most explosive periods of legislative productivity in this nation's history. And I may not like all of the stuff they did as a conservative. I, I do like the Civil Rights Act of 64, but I may not like everything else they did during the 60s and 70s. But that's not the point. The point is you can legislate amidst times of extraordinary unrest, but you have to have a different mentality about it. And I think that's what's shifted. You know, Adams tells us that our, you know, not Johnny Q Adams, but his, his papa, he tells us that the revolution occurred long before the actual revolution in terms of the sentiments of the people of, in America, in terms of them acting and reacting to one another to govern themselves. You know, Hannah Arendt tells us that usually the legitimacy of a regime goes well, well before you even notice it. And it's actually, you just kind of topple it at the very end. And this is where I'm very concerned because I think the institutions, they die when people stop trying to win inside them. And I do think I want to go back to the Senate because I think the Senate's the canary in the coal mine here. It, it's not the House. I mean, the House, it's districts, not states. That's one reason. I think House members have, you know, they're a little bit more homogenous and cohesive. Um, you, it's easier to roll individual House members, individual senators have the capability to act. And if we were as partisan or as polarized, then we would see these members doing more. And their constituents would demand that they do more under the old mentality because partisanship and polarization induce people to act. But today, unlike in the early 60s, there's nobody shaking their windows or rattling their walls. They're all focused on the election. And the second you get close to shaking the windows, they go, whoa, 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 whoa. If you shake too hard and I lose my seat, guess what? Those commies over there are going to win and America is going to fall into the ocean. And then the other side saying the exact same thing about you know, the other people. And ultimately what happens is that we keep focusing on these elections. And I'm, you know, it's like you're waiting for Godot and it's like nothing ever changes. And that's, I think, the problem right now. That's the, and so I share your concern 100%, but I think it's, it's the people. It's the people and their elected representatives. We have a different view of politics today that doesn't allow us to have these productive disagreements, these sometimes very messy and unfortunate fights to ultimately reconcile ourselves to outcomes and move forward. I don't know. I mean, what do you, and we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but what do you, how do you respond to that? Or especially my Bob Dylan recitation. Well, as a, as a elder millennial, I never respond to anything involving Bob Dylan whatsoever. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll remain silent there, but I don't know. I, I think about your view on this a lot and Obviously, my book makes the argument that America's political system becomes ungovernable in the case of political parties. And it sort of ends on this thought experiment that actually feels much less of an experiment now than it did when I wrote it, where trying to imagine some of the discord and fracture and political violence 
of the 60s transposed onto the political system of the 2020s now, right? What would happen if in that era, instead of having this system of mixed political parties that absorbed fracture and either suppressed part of it from politics, or once they were able to try to find consensus for it, right? Tried to try to turn that fracture into some kind of compromise. What if you had a system where the incentives at the media level, at the um, politician level, et cetera, were to amplify fracture, were to find the most fracturing thing and like shout it off the rooftops? I don't know. Like, I don't know how bad that could have gotten, but I think pretty bad. I would certainly agree with you that to the extent that things are gonna change, Mass mobilization is a big part of that. I just would also note we've seen a quite extraordinary level of mass mobilization over these last couple of years. You know, the the women's marches, the um, consistent protests over police brutality and for Black Lives Mattering. We've seen a certain amount of, I think, on the right, like the Tea Party movement. I mean, it's not that we live in an era without mobilization, but there is actual evidence coming from Erica Chenoweth and others that mass mobilization is becoming less effective, which is kind of an interesting, interesting question. And she has some ideas about how maybe it's because some of it starts online, so the, the the relationships at its core are less durable. I mean, they're interesting questions about why, but that is something we're, we're potentially observing here. So I, I think this is more than people not wanting it enough. I think this is more than people having the sort of wrong ideas about their, their political figures. Um, people know that one of my more bank shot arguments, um, or may know, uh, you guys know, I should say, because I've talked about Lee at some length, that one of my more bank shot arguments is that the filibuster and other elements of our system trap us endlessly in the discord phase of governance, right? Instead of passing legislation like you would in another country, then it goes into effect and then people decide if they like it, which is more, which has happened to some degree with Obamacare or they hate it, which, you know, happens with, with some other things. And then they either return or, or reject the next team from office um, or the governing, the governing team from office. Instead, we're endlessly caught usually in this place of things not passing, but us arguing over them, which is just the most polarizing spot on the on the horizon. And I don't think that's stable. So, I mean, I do think if Democrats had won 54 seats, 55 seats, which wouldn't be out of line with, say, their, the, the kind of popular vote they get in the Senate, um, but obviously it's not going to happen right now, given the given the map, I think it would have gotten rid of the filibuster. I think that they were basically at that spot or getting very close to it. Um, so I think we would have seen a test of that hypothesis. But we're not going to see it this way. I mean, divided government to me is just sort of part of the problem. Like you say that if people, you know, were polarized enough and wanted it enough, they would just kind of demand their legislators use their actual power under the rules or to change the rules to, to make it happen. But that really begins to fall apart when different groups control different uh, elements of government. So I think it's a I think it's a bad situation. I think we are not. This is, again, to go back to the very beginning of the conversation, this is why I'm not in the more jubilant place of some of the liberals I know, that I think the problem of Donald Trump being president is going to be solved by this election. But the deeper problems of governance, the deeper problems of fracture, the deeper the deeper problems of a, a sort of move towards an anti-system, soft, ethno-nationalist, like open to strongman thing happening on the right is not going away and in some ways is getting worse. You know, while we've been talking, and, and I apologize because I, I try usually not to look at my computer during these things, but while we were talking, uh, a statement got released by Purdue and Loeffler in Georgia, basically saying that the Secretary of State in Georgia should resign, that the election has been a disaster, that there's like too many allegations of fraud. And for people who don't know, like covering the Georgia elections, 
the Georgia elections have been very well run, actually. It's been one of the most transparent of the different electoral um, states right now. Uh, they're not run great. I have a lot of problems with how Georgia does its work, but there's no reason to think there's a special problem there this year. But one thing that is being now said in the reporting around this is that they believe, and McConnell believes, that the way to win that those specials in Georgia is to activate Republicans using the um, electricity from the idea that the election is being stolen from them. So I don't think we're in a great place. Um, and I don't think it's that people don't feel the stakes are high or the partisans are not sufficiently polarized or that the polarization is fake. What I do think is people do not have ways to turn their political anger into productive governance. And so it goes into much more unproductive strategies instead. So uh, we've been doing a lot of pessimism, uh, but you know, I, I want to think about some ways forward. And I mean, the, the political era that I think about having the most analog to today is the uh, progressive era. And, you know, I think if you look back to the Gilded Age, high polarization, high inequality, a lot of unrest, labor capital strikes uh, or labor capital conflict, labor strikes. And you know, eventually, you know, we entered a different era, a lot of a lot of reform. But it was, you know, an, an era in which there was a, a new generation of political leaders uh, who were sort of were, were in and around the progressive movement and who sort of offered something that was really orthogonal to where the two parties were. Uh, now, Ezra, you talked to a lot of members of Congress and, you know, more, more than I do probably, although I've, you know, I've talked to some, you know, and I think all of them or most of them recognize that the place that we're in is not a particularly stable or functional place and you know, not not really, you know, the, the job of their dreams as much as, you know, they are still still in it, perhaps for the status more than anything. But like, I, I mean, do you think there there are any ways in which you can kind of cultivate and uplift a generation of political leaders who might think differently about the nature of our current conflict or even of our political system itself. And is that the way forward? I mean, what or, or, or what, what else do you see as sort of possibilities for getting out of this you know, endless period of gridlock and stasis and just fighting the same trench warfare over and over and just digging a deeper and deeper hole? So I think there are, there are two two questions here, and one is short-term and one is longer-term. The short-term question is, is there a plausible path towards some kind of constructive governance equilibrium in the coming couple of years? I am not optimistic. I am not optimistic. I am not optimistic. So before I say this, I want to say it is not a prediction, but 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 to me, it's the, it's the likeliest possibility, which is, as you say, I report uh, with a, a, a number of members of, of Congress, so do many other people, and the most common thing you'll hear is just frustration, fury, disappointment about the way the Senate works now, particularly from senators. And that's true on the Republican side, too. One of the great mysteries of the Senate, and it's something James and I have spoken about before, is why six or eight or ten of these senators don't band together and decide to make it work differently. They don't like it. They don't like how things are, you know, under McConnell on the Republican side. They don't really like how things are often under Schumer on the Democratic side. And a bunch of them want it to be different. It's closely divided. That means they have the power to make it different if they chose. So is there some possibility that Romney, Murkowski, Collins, you know, and a couple sort of similar players on the Democratic side, maybe Toomey, who's and you know from uh, on the Republican side, who's retiring in 2022, 
Is there some possibility that some group of these folks band together and decide to be assertive with their power as senators and to make some deals and try to restore the institution to its former luster? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing stopping them, really. Like, what's the worst that can happen? They're going to lose an election and get a book contract and a TV commentating deal? Like, yeah, show some backbone. It could happen. It could happen. Um, Biden, a nice line in his uh, in his speech, in his semi-acceptance speech, uh, you know, the other night where he said, we have chosen not to cooperate with each other. We could choose to cooperate with each other. And... You know, I'm the I'm the structural explanations guy for all this stuff. So there's a part of me that hears that line. It's like, oh, my God, man. And then it's also there's a part of me that's like, that is true, right? You know, nothing's stopping people from casting different votes than they currently cast. And the worst that's going to happen to them is they're going to lose a race. So you could just try to be a little bit more courageous about it. So that would be the short term. You're not going to raise up the new generation of leaders you need in the next three years. But, you know, you got some in there who could just choose to be leaders now. Then in terms of the long term... This is not going to be a problem we solve, this political equilibrium. It's going to be a problem we change out of. Maybe we change out of it into worse problems, but maybe we change out of it into something better. You know, the electorate will age. A lot of people will die. New people will come into the electorate. Younger people have a different set of values and a different set of views. And maybe it just is a case that we're in a a bumpy equilibrium between the boomers holding the balance of political power in this country and the millennials holding the balance of political power in this country. I can't tell you for sure that'll happen. And I can't even tell you what will happen if that did happen. But is it impossible that in 10 years we've got a blue Texas and a blue Georgia and those things are pretty reliable? And so, you know, the different parties are competing in different ways now and some other states have moved a little redder and it's not impossible. Um, These things do change. You know, one, one era gives rise to the next era. And so I don't currently see the seeds of it as clear as I'd like to. Like when I look at, say, younger Republicans, I see some of the young Republicans coming in are frankly... I'll use this example here, Elise Stefanik, um, who's a young, uh, I believe, a New York House member, um, and I think was the youngest member when she was elected, and was understood as a, a pretty moderate Republican. She'd worked for uh, Josh Bolton in the, not John Bolton, but Josh Bolton in the Bush White House, has become just much Trumpier in the past couple of years, and has clearly seen that as a path to, to, to more power, or you look at some of these folks who just got elected. You know, it's it doesn't look great in the young Republican Party and the young Democratic Party is much more, um, you know, democratic socialist, which I tend to agree with a lot more in, in, in terms of the merits. But, you know, if you're looking for some version of like how cooperation is going to happen, you're not going to find it between those two wings working together. So but that doesn't mean you won't see the political map change enough that some of the questions and concerns that I have are just going to be, you know, overwhelmed by time and by a blue Texas doesn't mean that you're not going to see the objective situation change because of just what happens to the country or the global economy. So, you know, things will change. Like nobody should believe that the analyses that I'm giving out right now or anybody else is giving out are set in stone. But I don't see a I don't see a strategy that gets anybody there. It's it's a little bit hard for me to to to, to see the path from here to there or even confidently predict predict where there will be. I, I thought that Biden quote was fabulous. A fabulous. And this is odd Ezra, because I'm the conservative here and I'm going to now talk about Satra and I'm going to talk about how, you know, the French existentialist really can show us the way to recover American exceptionalism. Um, But, you know, he's right. He's 100 percent right. And I think one of the things that we've missed in our politics today and the way we think about it is this concept of agency. 
And this gets to the core reason why this dysfunction persists. It has nothing to do with whether blue policies or red policies are on top. New people with new policy commitments are going to still produce the same outcomes, in my opinion, so long as they understand and think about politics in the exact same way. And that's this kind of means ends production oriented view. And why is that? Winning in its most simplest terms requires showing up, putting your feet on the ground and trying to pass legislation, trying to do things. And if we look at AOC, for instance, who I think is a phenomenal political talent in so many different ways, who was so untainted by the system when she first came in. And she's like, okay, I want to do something. So I'm going to act. I'm going to act. Because if you can't, if you don't act, you're not going to do anything. And Pelosi's like, whoa, we agree with you. But the way to do that is to not act to not try to do that. Why? Because if you act, you'll reveal divisions in the party. It'll make it hard for us to win the factory and to hold the factory. And then ultimately we can't build the widget that you want to build. And so what ultimately happens is you end up, and look, it may not always make sense to act. It may be, you know, and I'm being dumbing it down extraordinarily uh, to a great degree right now. But ultimately, you have to have members of Congress who want to act. And you have to have voters who demand that those members act on their behalf at times. And I think the Georgia special is a great example of this. If you look at the rhetoric in this, it's out of control. If I mean, you would think Karl Marx was running. And it's like socialism. And so and it's like these it's like painting with such broad brushes. And it's like so I saw something the other day it was like socialism and healthcare. And it's like, well, let me get this straight. The Republican Party of Loeffler and Purdue would probably be okay with maintaining the current safety net just so much as they could deliver the entitlement with a, um, you know, a tax credit. And then the Democratic Party's, you know, let's maybe, let's just say, let's give them a check. I mean, I'm, this is very simplistic. In a thousand years from now, I'm not sure that, I mean, one may or may not be more effective at achieving its ends, but I'm not sure that is the difference between like freedom and socialism, right? I mean, I, but we don't see that because we're so focused on this kind of election horse race got to control the factory got to show up got to you know do everything we can to keep the evil people out that we never bother to look in the mirror and say you know what maybe there's not as much difference as we think or maybe there is but we're just not even aware of the differences that between us and we never get compromised that way because and then no one ever acts and we use this partisanship and polarization is an excuse not to act i don't have a question yeah by the way. <laughs> I, think, I think I was just I really excited. I got to like quotes, uh, like to reference Satra as the is uh, the conservative on this in this conversation. Um, but no, and I mean, what do you? It so well, I mean, but what do you? I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it. I'm from the south. I assume because it sounds French, so I'm yeah. like, oh man, that's not how I pronounce it, and I must be wrong. <laughs> I don't pronounce all the letters. I think is what you're supposed to do. Um, but no, I mean, in in all seriousness, though, I mean, is there? I mean, am I? What am I missing here? It seems to me that. People should, you know, and it's not just like great. I mean, grassroots is one thing. And the Tea Party, Here's yeah, what but- I think you're missing here. I, I think, I do not think you are necessarily right that AOC is committed to getting things done and Nancy Pelosi isn't. I think that you heavily weight the, a certain strategy for getting things done 
which may or may not be correct. I can't tell you that it isn't. It's not like I've gotten so much legislation passed. You've been you've been around more of that than I have. Um, I'm just trying but, to make a point. I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 but I take but I take it seriously that you know Pelosi's concern about holding Connor Lamb's district is not wrong. And then at some point they have to act. And what I would say is that Pelosi has a reasonably good record of acting when she has the power to act, like take Obamacare, which just I think doesn't pass without Pelosi's steel, which is like flatly doesn't. And so when it comes time to spend down her majority, she'll spend it. Um, and the issue has been like what she's been trying to do over the past couple of years is like Democrats need to win a bunch of seats where AOC isn't popular. And I don't want to take anything away from AOC's brand of politics either. I think some of the critiques she's making the Democrats, particularly on digital strategy, are right. But I don't. I just, I mean, just one place we differ is like, I think that you, I think that you look at the way people act in politics and see a revealed preference for inaction. And I see some of that. I mean, some of the filibuster, you know, and its retention works that way. But, but I think it's, I see it as a more complicated collision of incentives and often people trying to build the power to act and not quite knowing how, you know, and being, so I, I just don't. I don't think this is all about deciding, but for individual members of the Senate in safe seats, I think there is some real power here. And they're all just, you know, they should just be a little bit less chicken shit. Look, if, you know, I know that this particular podcast has a big um, audience among, among moderate Republican senators, so I will address this sort of directly to them. If... These folks who think of themselves as institutionalists cannot prove their institution can work. If they cannot stand up and make their institution work, then their institution will eventually die. Like this is not endlessly sustainable, right? Either Democrats will get enough power through some weird set of like things happening to like completely remake it or something will happen, right? Or just like the problems we face will overwhelm us. But there is an opportunity to be part of a generation of senators who even if you lose a seat, you show this is possible. And like, wouldn't that be worth it? Like, wouldn't 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 that be worth it? So maybe I'm coming around to your view on this uh, a little bit, James. Like, if they believed what they said, they would take more risk. But it is very, very, very easy for people to convince themselves that the best way to get their project done in the long run is to never take on any personal risk. And I don't think that's true for everybody, but I think that is a particular issue that afflicts a certain kind of high-minded moderate. And uh, I, I wish moderates had a little bit more steel and a little bit more backbone, but I, I sometimes think there's something almost uh, intrinsic to the personality type that creates a preference for a kind of aesthetic stability, even if what you're doing is fundamentally destabilizing. Um, and I think that has served the institution very poorly. Well, and I think we wrap up now, but I mean, I think that's actually a profound point about the tension between stability and instability that I think sometimes a lot of what is perceived as keeping things stable, preserving norms, kind of, you know, just just doing the things the way that you're sort of expected to do them is actually what is creating tremendous instability. Uh, and in order to have more stability in the longer term, we're going to need a, a more short term instability. 
And you know, I, one of the things that's been running through my head as we've been having this last bit of conversation is the old saw about the difference between economics and sociology, which is economics is about the choices people make and the incentives, and sociology is about how people have no choices to make because it's all sort of this, this sort of soft cultural norm stuff. And I think sometimes the conversation that we're having about Congress is kind of caught between those those two. And maybe one way to kind of think about it is there, there's also a third, which is the types of people who are running for Congress and what they're expecting to get out of it. Uh, and, you know, par part of me wonders whether, you know, it, there's this sort of sense in which, you know, the people who go into Congress now you know, are, are, are not really the people who actually want to get stuff done. They want to play by a certain set of rules and advance themselves. I don't know how to think about that exactly, but this conversation does have me thinking a little more about the, the sort of pipelines into politics. Yeah, I think thinking about those is, is wise. Um, you know, I, I do think that it'd be worthwhile for people to, I think one of the great shames of this era in politics is that it makes politics look so bad and so useless that a lot of people just decide that's not for me, right? And so a lot of people who it would be great to see them running at the local level and then moving up because candidate quality really matters don't they are turned off by it or they see themselves in opposition to it so you know i guess don't be don't be too depressed uh you know run for something be be, be the change you seek yeah amen you know i'm a i'm an optimist at heart and this can all change overnight i don't care again what policy views everybody may have if you don't like the system and if you don't like what's happening then we need to participate in politics to change it. And we and that's what self-government is all about. And that's what people can do. And yes, I'm you know, there's there's challenges to that. But ultimately, if the American people decide to to wake up one morning and to start engaging in in popular self-government, then in in all of these different fabulous institutions we have in this wonderful nation of ours under the Constitution. And yes, even if they want to change the constitution, but you got to do that. You got to get out there and you, and politics is hard and it's brutal, but it's also the best way we have to govern ourselves without rulers. And we have a wonderful system here. And, uh, you know, it's the dysfunction we see today is not, it's not something that is inherent in that system. I do not believe. And I think ultimately it's something that can be changed overnight. All right, let's start the revolution. <laughs> Sign me up. It'll be a motley crew there. So. Well, All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of Politics in Question. For our listeners, please, please check out Ezra's podcast. It's fabulous. Yours truly and uh, my illustrious co-host have uh, appeared on it in the in the past, and many, many other illustrious uh, illustrious guests. And also check out his book Why We're Polarized. It's a fabulous read, and I strongly encourage it. And, and Ezra, the name of your podcast? The Ezra Klein Show. Oh, it's a great name. <laughs> very, very memorable. <laughs> Very, very humble. Thank you all so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.